everyone. I'm Andrea Ferretti, and this is episode 209 of Yoga Land. Hi, Jason. Hi, Andrea. We are a little late this week because basically all of California has been challenged, let's yes. say, by the fires. But we're um, using that as an excuse? I love it. It is the excuse. Well, it actually totally <laughs> it's is the excuse. actually the You're reason. Right. You're right. Yeah. You're right. Um, but we're safe and we're, we feel really fortunate and, uh, just, you know, gosh, sending our thoughts to everyone who is in the thick of it. Okay. And you don't know this, Andrea, but I'm going to tell you, and I'm going to tell the world that this Sunday, which is my birthday. So you probably already have a check marked on your calendar. All of you. Of course. I, no, oh, I'm them. talking to dear listener. <laughs> okay. Um, I'm going to do from 8am to 8.30am a fundraising donation class that's going to direct relief for everyone that has been impacted by the California and the Western fires. Okay. Um, we're going to do that on Yoga Glow's um, Instagram channel. Great. Um, so just if you can turn up. So it's just up, a free Instagram it's live. A, it's a free Instagram live. And then during that time, there's going to be links for donation. Great. Yeah. And, and it's at 8 a.m. Pacific. Yes. Awesome. Yes. Good for you. Yes. I'm proud of you for doing that on your birthday. I'm totally stoked. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, you know, I already know what birthday gift I'm getting you because I saw it the other day. Uh, house in Southern California? <laughs> it was inside one of the houses. Oh, okay. Okay. It has to do with Shark Tank. I'll just put it there. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, so today, <laughs> we're cracking ourselves up. Next week, you are starting a sequencing intensive teacher training. Um, it starts on Tuesday. And uh, what we're doing, the way we're doing it this time, I've sort of said we've got, we're, we're improving our process every time. Yes. Yeah, so this time we are launching the content on Tuesday. So everyone who has signed up will have access to the content on Tuesday, the pre-recorded lectures. You can take the week to watch those. And then Jason will start doing um, the live calls where he can answer questions about the content and talk about the content Friday, Saturday, Sunday. You have two different time slots for each day. Start one starting at 10 a.m. Pacific, one starting at 2 p.m. Pacific. And you've added a 45-page manual. Boom. Um, can I just say this is no, no plug for anything other than my joy. Canva.com. It literally, it makes me, it scratches the, it, I never knew I wanted to be a graphic designer. <laughs> I know. It's and now amazing. I get firing on that thing. And, you know, I, I have said this actually a little bit. I think this is um, helpful for people, especially teachers, right, is the way that I teach and the way that I learn are actually really different. When I teach, I'm extremely verbal, mm -hmm. right? I'm a good verbal communicator, um, but I'm not a very good verbal processor. I'm a visual learner. So I'm a verbal teacher, but I'm a visual learner, right? And you know this just from being my wife, right? Because anytime that you try to read me something, whether it's a post, whether it's a story, whether it's whatever, I say, no, 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 no. let me read that. Mm -hmm. um, and so actually what creating these handbooks is allowing me to do um, is it's allowing to me to complement what I think is my strength by providing more visuals to go with the way that I um, write and yeah. speak, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I've thought about this for so long is that um, I want to be able to create content and structure it in a way that people with different learning styles can access it. 
Uh, and this is something that you and I spend so much time with in our lives, uh, both with ourselves and with our daughter, just respecting different learning styles. Mm -hmm. And so this has just been a really fun way to make sure I have more visuals to go with uh, the video and the, the audio content. It's so funny that someone who is taking my course right now, I can't remember who it was that asked, but, oh, I think it might've been Luciana. Um, she posted on Facebook because I have a whole Canva section in my course on just the basics of how to use it. And I, I, I just love it so much. And um, she posted on Facebook and said, are these graphics that Jason's been posting? Does he create these in Canva? Because I love them. Totally. I said, yes, totally. you will. You too will know how to create them very soon. Yeah. I just want to add for anyone who took the online sequencing course in June, we will email you this new digital handbook. So please don't email me yeah, asking. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I I'm do my best to manage the customer service. So I'm going to manage it this way and say that we will look at, we will collate our list of people who took the course in June and we will proactively email you this handbook. But that won't be the case if you've done my sequencing course on Live. Globe. Yeah. On or, Globe. Okay. Unfortunately, it's just, it's a totally different thing. It's a different product. It's a different company. But... I want to jump into what we're going to talk about today. Um, and the reason that we're doing this is because my head has been so buried in sequencing and content development um, that it's just so front of mind. And I've been thinking about some like very simplified, streamlined ways that I help teachers think about uh, preparing their students for different pose categories. And I think the longer I teach, the more details I try to get rid of if they're unnecessary, right? Like I think it's with anything, like I think I have really streamlined certain protocols. And um, one of the ways that I have streamlined uh, preparation, preparations for different pose categories is really just looking at a body in three parts. Right. So whether I'm thinking about, and then I'm going to go into greater, greater detail because it's, it's helpful. But I think about um, in any pose category, what are the shoulders doing? What is the spine and core doing? So what's the trunk doing? And what are the hips doing? Those are really what I'm mostly focused on. Right. And so if I take a moment and we just talk about twists for a moment, if I know that I'm going to emphasize twists in any given class, and I want to reverse engineer that and say, okay, how do I give my students the best opportunity to have deep, skillful, satisfying, and sustainable twists, right? From just a physical perspective. All I really need to do is look at what are the demands that twists are going to place on the hip joint? What are the demands that are going to be placed on the spine and core? What are the demands that are going to be placed on the shoulders? And then if I can identify what those demands are, and I can pretty easily identify what those demands are, then I can just take a step back and say, okay, well, what are the things in a progressive logical order that are going to help me prepare each one of those three regions, right? So when we're thinking about twists, um, if I start with hips, I'll tell you, I think that the hips are super, super overlooked in sequencing preparations. People spend a ton of time with the spine and core, but they don't spend much time thinking about, well, when you do a twist, what are the demands that do we place on the hips? What are the demands we place on the shoulders? And how can we front load so that in our sequences we're preparing for that? And when most twists, 
um, especially most seated twists, actually have a pretty strong demand on one very specific part of the hip joint, um, which is the latter, the most lateral part of the hip joints, uh, which is typically referred to as the abductors or the abductors, right? So if you have a little bit more technical knowledge, hips tend to put a lot of demand, excuse me, twists tend to put a lot of demand on the gluteus medius, the gluteus minimus, and the tensor fasciolata. And the reason that this is, is because if you look at most twists, most seated twists, the bent leg that you're moving towards is stepped across the body, okay? So if I'm in a simple seated twist, and let's say like Ardhamatsyandrasana or Marichyasana or Pashasana, several others, the, the legs are really narrow. And in a lot of these twists, one foot, like the right foot, is stepped to the outside of the left knee. Oftentimes you have these twists where one foot steps across to the outside of the other leg, mm -hmm. right? And so when that happens, that puts a ton of demand on the lateral part of the hip. And if you haven't prepared the lateral part of the hip well, then the resistance in the lateral part of the hip is going to, be, is going to add to the resistance of the spine in the rotation. The other thing that happens is if the outer hips are really, really tight when you're setting up for twists, um, pretty often the pelvis can be distorted, that, that, that the pelvis rotates a little bit backward over the thighs when the outer hips are tight. And so it's really hard to get the full upright length of the torso, right? So when you twist, it's not necessarily that you're quote unquote twisting the hips, but the postural demands on the hips and the twists are made easier when those lateral hips are opening, mm -hmm. open. So I usually prepare my students for twists with a bunch of specific outer hip opening poses, right? So pigeon pose, family stuff is good, but I really like the Gomukhasana, Garudasana family, because in those poses, you're adducting the legs. So you're bringing those legs a little bit more narrow and tight. You're kind of mocking up what the demands are going to be in the twist. So that by the time you get to the twist, that area is a little bit more supple. Mm -hmm. Right. Okay. So yeah, I don't think about sequencing. I'm a <laughs> very intuitive sequencer is what I, I like to see, call myself. I want to see excitement. No, what I'm what's about to say is that I don't think about the hips when I'm doing, you know, when I'm Most doing Most people twists. don't. But it totally, as soon as you said it, it makes sense. Yeah. yeah. Um, and then the next thing, if we just kind of go up, which I think is relatively obvious, I don't think we need to spend time on it. It's more the concept. It's more the concept of the physical preparations and just kind of thinking, okay, I'm working towards this family of poses or I'm emphasizing this family of poses or I've chosen a couple of peak poses. Let's make sure that we prepare our students as well as we can. And then by, do, by having that thought inside, we just think, okay, let's make it really simple. What are the stresses on the hips? What are the stresses on the trunk? What are the stresses on the torso or on the shoulders? And let's find some easier poses to front load and prepare our students that accomplish those goals. So when it comes to spine, like spine slash core and preparations, the first thing I ask myself is in this class today, do I want to emphasize 
core strength in my twists? Or do I want to emphasize um, more passive, flexible range of motion in my twists? And I'm going to give you a simple little example, okay? So if you think about a reclined twist, like really any reclined twist or more of a, a yin style twist, right? You're going to be there longer. You are not overtly trying to engage the rotational muscles of your core and spine. You're allowing them to be a little bit more passive. And what you're doing is you're primarily looking for motion, um, specifically a rotational motion of the thoracic spine. That's really what we're looking for, right? So that is kind of one set of objectives. But we have another set of objectives, which would be a more um, active style of twist, like, oh, you know what? Instead of focusing on those like longer held, slower, quieter, deeper, passive twists, instead, I want to focus a little bit more on strongly activated dynamic twists. So in which case, that would take us more into the category of standing twists, right? Half moon pose, revolved half moon pose, revolved triangle pose, maybe playing with some binds in some of those poses. So if you were going to prepare in a more kind of soft range of motion, non-core strength focus, then you would do that in a way um, where you are progressively moving into more leverage and passive range. Um, you wouldn't be doing a bunch of core strengtheners. You wouldn't be doing a bunch of like um, spinal rotation activation. You would be looking for just a greater sense of kind of melting away the stress and releasing tension. But if I'm looking for really dynamic uh, twists, then I'm not going to do it that way because a dynamic pose can be prepared for in a dynamic way. Mm -hmm. So if I'm doing dynamic twists or much more active twists, then I'm probably going to do a lot more core strengthening. I'm probably going to do a lot more outer hip strengthening. Mm -hmm. I'm probably going to do more um, active range of motion for spinal muscles, right? So I'm not really early on in that preparation process. I'm not really going to think about letting it all go. I'm going to think about kind of cinching it all in and lifting it all up and getting those muscles to be uh, strong within their active ranges of motion, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. So I think about this a lot. So, and I don't want to be too, um, if you want to do X, you absolutely have to do Y. Prescriptive, yeah. I'm not too prescriptive, right? But these are just, these, these become really good points of reflection and consideration, um, so that when we walk into our practice, we're thinking, okay, I'm going to take, I'm going to focus a little bit more on twist today. Well, let's take that another step. Are you just letting it go and unwinding stress and looking for range of motion and ease? Yes. Or yes, yes, <laughs> That's me. yes. Or are you looking for a little bit more strength and stability, maybe lower range of motion, but more um, whole body postural activation? Mm -hmm. Right. Yep. And then that's going to totally help me decide what kinds of techniques and postures I'm going to select in the preparations. Yeah. The final thing, which I think is pretty simple. Um, and again, we're just thinking broadly about the what are the demands that twists place on the shoulders? Right. And I think this really depends on are you going to emphasize any binds in your twists 
or are you not? Me, not. You, not. Many people, maybe. Yes. Maybe. Yeah. Okay. So I want to keep that open, right? It's it's not. Um, I have a strong uh, belief system, but I also understand that um, students come to class with a very diverse set of needs, interests, and body types. Yeah, absolutely. So there are going to be people that want to bind. There's going to be people that aren't able to bind. But if you are going to bind, you probably want to spend a little bit of time preparing the shoulders for that motion. When we are binding, we're taking the arm into a specific position. The majority of what's moving in a bind is the upper arm bone, the humerus. The scapula has a little bit of motion to it, but the majority of the motion of a bind um, is the upper arm. So you're internally rotating, you're adducting, and you're distracting the humerus. So some of the things that I like to do in preparation for that, I mean, any shoulder open in your life is a good thing to do. So it's not like you should not do certain shoulder openers. You can do anything, but you want to make sure that you do some shoulder openers that take that specific set of requirements. Um, one of the really simple things to do is uh, reverse hands in reverse prayer or the bottom arm in gomukhasana, cow face pose, or even taking the arms behind you, holding the forearms or holding the elbows. And then another way to prepare for bound twists uh, to prepare the shoulders for bound twists is to do a couple of binds that don't involve twists, right? Because usually when you're doing a twist and a bind, like there just aren't really any easy bound twists. Yeah. You know what I mean? Um, but there are some relatively accessible bound postures that aren't twists. Um, the two that are coming to mind are uh, bound side angle pose, and bound triangle pose. You can even, one of the nice things about those poses too is they're really modifiable. So if people don't have the range for a full bind, you can just take the top arm behind you, hold the front thigh, hold the front hip crease, or even just with your hand, um, uh, when people have less range, you can hold on to the back of your waistband, mm -hmm. right? And so those postures... They, they get the shoulders as prepared as they're going to be for the rotational demands of some of those deeper, uh, mostly seated bound twists. Mm -hmm. I like it. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. So you... outer hip length, think about core, whether you're doing more passive work today or more active work today, and then take a moment to sort out whether or not you're going to bind. And if you are going to bind, you need a couple more specific shoulder openers. And I can't help myself, but one just troubleshooting thing. The most common thing that I see as a point of troubleshooting, um, and I always, as in sequences, I try to preempt what I anticipate are going to be some challenges. And I bring students' awareness to those things. So what I notice when most people twist is the head goes forward and down. Yeah. Right? It's just so common. There's other things that happen. But um, if I know, hey, I'm going to really focus on twists and I can pretty much anticipate that I'm going to see those heads go forward and down, then you early- mean kind of like like iPhone neck. Right? Yeah, like iPhone kinda, neck. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. So the head comes forward and down off of that axis. So 
I'm going to prepare for that. Ginger's right behind you, by the way. Don't move back. Okay. <laughs> She's I won't. Like right, squished up. I, I was about to throw myself backwards. <laughs> I, know, I know. I saw her little ears. Um, so I am going to um, anticipate that students might have that head forward and down. And I'm probably going to give some cues earlier in the sequence about drawing the back of the skull up and back. Uh-huh. So right, so so that they're so that they already have the the muscle memory of taking the head and the place we want it, as opposed to just trying to deal with it after it's happened. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah, that's smart. It's funny. I was gonna do a. I I ended up not doing it. Maybe in the next iteration, but for my course, I was going to do like a quick photo shoot prep guide. If you're photographing your asana, uh-huh. because I just did that for so long for the journal and the the one like tip that kept coming into to mind for me is pretty much anyone we would photograph had forward head in their twists anyone even the most adept practitioners and they and we don't know it yeah it's just like a, it's just a habit it's just a habitual placement. it's right it's it feels it feels like the normal place it's where yeah. most of our heads live well, and also like we're sort of when you're twisting, somehow you your neck becomes like the seeker in the pose. Yeah. Like you think your neck is rotating, your you, you, the rotation comes out in your neck. Right. So anyway. Right. Okay, so we're going to talk about one more pose category, and that is backbending. Backbends, everybody's favorite. Well, you know, a lot of people love backbends. Oh, I actually meant that. I even love them now, yeah. even though I'm not, quote unquote, you know, good at them. <laughs> I'm not a strong backbender. I don't know if you need quote unquote on that statement. That's a fairly empirical statement. Well, I guess I just, who I don't like to talk about poses as good or bad. That I just seems totally weird. agree. Yeah. Oh, you know what? I saw this. I saw that. Can I digress for a quick moment? Of course. I saw this thing, a uh, social media post about how we need to stop using the language full expression of a pose. Oh, interesting. And you know what's interesting is I've always disliked that. As I've always really disliked that language. But um, I don't think it's... I, I understand why people started doing it, though. It was like I instead of too. saying the advanced version of the pose. Totally. It's like your fullest expression. Yeah, and we need to, we need to like be really careful not to just vilify everything. Yeah. Because people are just trying to communicate. But what... The thing that I don't like about that language um, is that, okay, that hopefully this will make sense. Um, if Imagine you have three different sized containers, right? You have a small container, you have a medium container, and you have a large container. Well, the f- quote unquote, like filling those things up or making those things full is completely relevant and subjective to the size of that thing. Okay. And I think that that's ultimately the problem with full expression of a pose, is that quote unquote full expression of the pose is subjective to the experience and the body type of the person doing that thing, mm-hmm. right? And so my full expression of a backbend might not be the same as your full expression of a backbend, might not be the same as someone else's. And so I kind of think like, if you are doing your backbends to your maximum threshold with integrity, that is in fact the full expression of a pose as being expressed by you, the person doing it. Yeah. Right? I've always heard it said as your fullest expression, go to your fullest expression of the pose, not like, you know, 
I think that's a new. I think that's a bit of language nuance that I like that yeah. I don't usually hear. Okay. Anyways, I don't. I don't want to digress in this too much, but but it's more being affirmative that you, in fact, are good at backbends if you compare your backbends to your experience of life. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Well, the, if, yeah, the backbends are good for me, so then right, they are good backbends for it, me. Exactly. Yeah. And and I'm the same. And I think one of the things that I one of the things that I love about sequencing, and honestly, one of the reasons I think that I'm really good at sequencing and teaching sequencing is because with the exception of arm balances, a couple of arm balances, I don't have many poses that come supernaturally for my body. Um, you do. You have like forward bends come really natural for you. Splits come pretty natural for you. Um, but I think one of the challenges that I have is that Every range of motion is, I have to, I have to spend a lot of time preparing for it. And so I, in a lot of ways, am the, I am the target audience of who I'm teaching because even though I'm skillful in my practice, I still really have to spend time working through every pose and every pose category um, in order to allow myself to actually do it. Yeah. Um, so same concept when I'm preparing my students for backbends. I just step back and I think three things. What are the demands being placed on the hip joint? What are the demands being placed on the spine slash core? What are the demands being placed on the shoulders? Okay. Now you might be asking yourself, well, there's more than that. There's the knees, there's the ankles, there's, there's all of those things. But those things don't typically require, they require technique. Um, they require some cueing maybe, but they don't necessarily require a lot of preparatory steps, right? So when I look at the front of the hips or when I look at the hips for backbends, it's pretty clear what we need. We need length on the front and we need strength on the back. So spending time to prepare the hip flexors and the quadriceps. Now, one of the hip flexors, the rectus femoris, is also a quadricep. So just to be technically accurate, when I say hip flexors and quads, I'm kind of using language in a strange way mm -hmm. because it's hip flexors. So usually what I yeah. say is hip flexors slash quads. Yeah. Right? <laughs> right? If and you then, want to be really accurate, yes. Yeah. And, I, and, and then, you know, one of the things that not only myself, but I think the general trend, the general positive trend of teaching asana over the past five to six years has really pointed towards, in all poses, but especially backbends, creating more strength and engagement on the backside. So actually using the extensor. So using glute max as an extensor and using hamstrings as extensors. So it's just kind of a broad thing. I think, okay, well, the first thing I really wanna emphasize in preparations is length on the front of the thigh, length on the front of the hip, and the ability to, to engage the muscles on the posterior side, okay? I'm gonna take that one more nuance. Because I brought up in the last talking about twists, I brought up the dynamic between, hey, are you gonna do a little bit more passive twisting or are you gonna do a little bit more dynamic twisting? I would say that unlike twists, the vast majority of backbends, except for restorative style backbends, are active backbends, right? Yeah. And so usually what I do are active preparations, right? And so 
what I'm often looking for is I'm looking not just to stretch the hip flexors and quadriceps, but I also want them to be engaged a little bit at their end range. Because all of the active backbends you do, the quadriceps and the hip flexors are stretching, uh-huh. but they're also working. Yeah. Right? And so I used to do like a ton of passive stretching, like supta virasana, artist supta virasana, all this passive stuff. And it's not wrong, but I, but in the long run, I don't find that it has really helped me because that passive stretching of my front side hasn't really translated to postures where I'm stretching the front side, but the front side is active. Okay. Like what? Give me an example. Um, okay. So if- Cause here's what's interesting is hearing you say that I realized I spent several years like early on in my practice, um, doing a lot of supta virasana too. And as well, I shouldn't say. Yeah. And uh, it helped me a lot in terms of just getting to, just getting into a viable range. Totally. You know what I mean? Like I do. I was just not even close to being able to just stretch the front of my body. Um, yeah. Yes. Yeah. And sometimes there can be so much tension or resistance that we need a we need periods of more passive range production in yeah. order to also get active range production. Right. I guess that's what I would say. Was yeah. And so I, and so I, I'm, I'm glad you brought that up because sometimes I struggle not being with not being black and white. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Um, and, you know, I think one of the things we always strive for is providing context and nuance. Um, so I'll say at this phase of sequencing for backbends, because I know bow pose, camel pose, um, upward facing bow pose, Viparita Dandas, like all the backbends that I'm going to teach in most of my classes, those are really active postures in which your quads and hip flexors are contracting very strongly while they are stretching. So they are doing eccentric engagement. Those muscles are working hard while they're stretching long. So what my current preference is, is doing postures that stretch that stuff, but engage that stuff while they're stretching instead of being passive while they're stretching. Okay. Um, which again, trying not to put a dichotomy and just yeah. saying like, it's my current preference. Right, right. I think is a, is a more skillful thing to say. Um, so I do a lot of low lunge quad openers I do a lot of crescent lunge, hip flexor, and quad openers. I do a lot of variations where I'm in a low lunge, I'm reaching back and holding my back foot. I do a lot of postures like Ardha Chandrasana, half moon, reaching back, holding the top foot, so Ardha Chandra Chapasana. And in all of those, as I'm holding the foot, I'm pretty strongly pressing the hand in, I'm pressing the foot into the hand while I'm doing it so that those quadriceps are engaged while they're stretching. Mm -hmm. Um, And also in pretty much all of my classes, but especially if I'm focusing on salutations, excuse me, especially if I'm focusing on backbends, then in the salutations, I do a lot of lunge-based salutations because crescent lunge and anjaneyasana lunge or low lunge, those are just much better ways to prepare the length on the front side um, than Surya Namaskar A. Uh-huh. Right? right? Yeah. So I, I, I really, really work with that. 
Um, when it comes to creating a little bit more strength on the backside, I mean, every listener, every consistent <laughs> listener knows. Or a student of yours. Yeah. Locust. Yeah. And so especially in the especially in the early lunge salutations, instead of just doing another chaturanga, it's so strange to me how much the yoga world just quibbles over the technique of chaturanga instead of also considering the excess repetition of chaturanga. Mm, yeah. You know? Yeah. So I diversify chaturanga. So I'm also doing locust pose and cobra pose and other versions of locust because it doesn't matter by just you just get chaturanga like to the T in terms of technique if you're doing it a disproportionate amount to other things. I mean, not only that. But I'm about to die. That's a digression. Not only that, you do teeny tiny look, uh, cobra pose, you do medium-sized cobra, and then you do giant cobra pose. I was teaching this morning. <laughs> I was teaching live this morning. And um, I said... And you do one breath cobra. Sorry. I do one breath cobra. Yeah. Um, and... I did, but see, now I'm really neurotic. Now you're in my I'm head. I'm sorry. That's I just okay. think it's, I really think it's cute. It's I adorable. Adorable. That's all I seek for is adorable. <laughs> adorable. Um, so I said, uh, like, I meant to say um, low or medium cobra, uh -huh. but I said, um, I said low to medium cobra. Uh -huh. That's what it's funny. Right? Because it's kind of like, Okay, that's so you so then you get to be somewhere between oh low and medium. It's so terrible. When I posted, so I posted an Instagram story for those of you who don't know what I'm talking about. This one night, Jason was teaching at home. He's just teaching a regular class at home, and I was in the kitchen cooking dinner, and it kept, it, he kept being like, you know, medium sized cobra. And then I did an Instagram story about how I think it's funny that he refers to medium sized cobra, but I've never heard him say like. And give me your most giganto, humongo size gargantuan cobra. And Jenny, gargantuan. <laughs> and Jenny Mayer, one of your students, um, texted, like DM'd me back with a, you know, laughing emoji and said, oh my God, this is so accurate. Today I heard myself saying, give me just the itty <laughs> tiniest, tiniest little cobra you've ever seen. Give me a cobra so small, it's not even cobra. It's just you <laughs> so laying on your face. A face down Shavasana cobra. <laughs> Go to sleep. You engage your muscles, but you don't lift anywhere. You don't lift anywhere. <laughs> Actually, you could do that. That'd be good. You could, yeah. Okay, anyways. Um, locus. <laughs> so things that just strengthen the back body, you know, and things that engage the hamstrings and glutes. Now, we take a next step up. Spine core, okay? To talk about the abs or the core and how they relate to back bending. They need to be rock hard, right? <laughs> Could take hours yeah. because it's really nuanced. But I'm going to give the quickest, simplest thing. Give us the cliff notes. The cliff notes is this. Um, ideally, when you do a backbend, ideally meaning my ideal, um, is that you have a commensurate amount of sensation in your low back, your medium, middle back, and your upper back. The low back, middle back, upper back all have a similar degree of sensation and tone, but they cannot have a similar degree of motion because the spine doesn't actually work that way. So what we're looking for in a back bend is lower back, middle back, upper back all have parity. They mm -hmm. all have an evenness. They all have an equanimity that one thing isn't overloaded and another thing isn't ignored. Because the lower back is the most mobile part of backbends, it is the thing that is most likely to go too much relative to everything else. 
And it's the thing that's likely to have too much sensation relative to everything else. Okay, that's not guaranteed, but that's common. If that is the case for you, then engaging your anterior abdominals a little bit more will tend to help mitigate that lower back from moving too much, right? Okay. So it's kind of by engaging your anterior abdominals, you slightly decrease how much the lower back goes into extension and therefore you slightly decrease the amount of stress that's there. Make sense? (laughs) Okay. So by doing that, right, by doing that, um, you can create a little bit more equilibrium in your back bends. Yeah. But I'm going to give you an example for me. I don't have a very mobile lower back. So I have no use in doing anterior core strengthening before my back bends. Right. It, it has no effect. Okay. It doesn't improve them. It doesn't do whatever. It has no it effect. Stabilize. Yeah. No, because I'm already strong there and I'm not particularly mobile. So I don't want us to think like one size fits all. Now, it's not wrong for me to do anterior core strengthening prior to backbending. There's nothing wrong with it, but there's no real upside given how my actual body works, right? Now, that being said, in doing a little bit of anterior core strength prior to backbends, if you have someone with more mobility in the lumbar spine, can be really beneficial. Um, So I kind of... I kind of just leave it up to everyone to think about that dynamic and to think like, oh, yeah, I want to focus a little bit more on doing more or no, I'm going to kind of forego it. Right. Okay. Two more quick things for spine and core is I like a little bit of twisting before my back bends, usually just standing twists, and a little bit of side bending. And the reason that I like the side bending is twofold. Number one... um, when you do side bends, you actually lengthen the psoas really well. A lot of people don't get this, but that. the psoas is not only a hip flexor, it's a lumbar stabilizer. Oh. And it is a, and the psoas is a lateral flexor of the spine. So when you do side bends, you, it's a good, different way to create length in the psoas. And it's a really good way to lengthen your lats. And lats can really impede, tightness in the lats can really impede backbends, right? Yeah. So those two things I like to throw in and then shoulders. So when it comes to shoulders, I'm really thinking about, hey, what kind of backbends am I going to emphasize? If I'm just going to do a little bit of everything, no worries. Then I'm going to do a little bit of every kind of shoulder opener. But if I want to focus a little bit more on back bends where the arms go into extension, where the arms reach back. Mm-hmm. So let's say I want to focus a little bit more on like the uh, bow pose, like mm-hmm. the face down bow pose, side laying bow pose, bridge, camel. Then I'm going to do more anterior shoulder and chest opening. What a lot of people will talk about is like heart opening, right? But if I want to focus on arm overhead back bends, like upward facing bow, Ord Vidanyarasana, or also called wheel, I don't just want to focus on opening the front of the shoulders. Because in those poses, the scapula need to rotate. And in order for the scapula to rotate, the muscles between the shoulder blades, so your rhomboids, your upper back muscles, they need to be supple. Mm-hmm. And so if I know that I'm going to do a bunch of arm overhead back bends, I don't just open the front of the shoulders, but I do a lot of stuff to open 
the upper back. Hmm. Um, so like Garudasana arms, like things that are really counterintuitive, like cat pose. Mm-hmm. Because those things, even though they take the spine the opposite way that they're going, they actually create length in the scapular muscles that if they're really tight, they can't really pivot very well um, to do the arm overhead poses. So I find that 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 is a hugely overlooked thing. Um, I overlook this part of backbend preparations for probably the first 10 years of teaching. Like I just didn't get that link. Yeah. Um, and now that I have that link, I, I feel like I can really help get those shoulders way more set up uh, for those arm overhead backbends. Well, it's interesting. It's like, I mean, we are three-dimensional beings. Yes. And, but when we think of backward backbends and forward bends, we often think of ourselves in two dimensions. Yeah. You know, just like going back or forward. Yeah. So, you know, but yeah, that seems like a much more uh, 3D holistic approach. Totally. Mm-hmm. It's, it's my last thing, which is like, I would say even with heart opening, some of the challenge that I have with that language, and I've always had since, you know, the early days of hearing it from the, from the Anyasara world, is whether we're talking about the organ, whether we're talking about the, our um, embodied emotional psychology, we're three-dimensional. The heart's three-dimensional. That's not just on the front. So if we want to do heart opening, let's consider that it has a front side, but it also has a back side and it has side sides, you know? So anterior shoulder opening, posterior shoulder opening, and then some of those side bends, I think are a really good formula. Yeah. All right. Well, that was a great little preview for me, especially since I haven't taken your sequencing course of what you're working on. And if people still want to sign up, there's still time. Um, It starts Tuesday, the 22nd. And you would just go to jasonyoga.com slash sequencing. Yeah. Awesome. Awesome. Thanks for letting me chat about this. Yeah, absolutely. And I'll put that link on the show notes page as well, which you can find at yogalandpodcast.com slash episode 209. All right, everyone. Be well. Take care of yourselves. And until next week, enjoy your practice. Enjoy your practice.